Since the beginning of September, we've been in a sermon series that's designed to help us try and think and think about and dream and imagine what our future can be like as a church, where some of you know we just turned seven years old, and so it's given us a great moment to kind of stop and assess what's been going on and, and what, what can we do as a church in the years to come so that, so that we do give God glory and we are a blessing to this city. And, and what we've been doing is we've been looking, we've been focusing on um, a series of core values that animate everything that we do. Today we're on the sixth value, something we're calling public faith. And to open up this subject, what, what are we talking about um, when we say we value public faith? We're going to approach this subject through the lens of John chapter 4 and Jesus' experience with this woman. So reading the Bible is a really fascinating thing. Sometimes with the Bible, what you do is you treat it like a mirror and you read a passage and, and you try to see how the passage shows you yourself. But sometimes you treat the Bible like a window and you press your face up to it and you see how looking out through the passage shows you the world. So what we're going to do is we're going to look out through this passage of Scripture as a, as a way of saying, when we, when we look through this passage of Scripture, what can we learn about this specific topic of being public with our faith? Three things. First of all, what does it mean to have a public faith? Secondly, how? Do we go about having a public faith? Like what manner, what posture? And third, isn't this all a bit arrogant to claim that we have the truth about God and religion? And isn't that kind of arrogance at the source of so many of the problems in the world today so divisive, so dangerous? A disclaimer up front, I grew up a very conservative Baptist. And our way of being public with the faith um, involved walking up to strangers on streets and rather um, firmly telling them the truth. And so I've had to relearn a lot of this. Um, I've had to relearn what it means to be public with faith in a more winsome and humble way. And one of, one of the places where I've found a lot of resources in this is, is a church in New York City named Redeemer Presbyterian Church and a pastor there named Tim Keller who, who is really good at being winsome and humble but bold and courageous all at the same time. And a lot of what I'm going to say in this sermon I've learned from him and um, some of it I'm just shamelessly stealing from him. And if you ever go to our website, you can download the manuscripts of our sermons and all the academic footnoting and honesty is there. But this is not an academic lecture, so I'm not going to say, as so-and-so says, I'm just going to act like I'm saying all this stuff. But there's my big footnote up front. So you have to go to the manuscript to figure out what actually was mine and what was his and what was just other people's I stole without citing. So what does it mean exactly to be public with our faith? First of all, this passage drew read to us. John chapter 4, verses 27 to 42. 
If you look carefully at verse 39, if you have a Bible, go ahead and find it. This will be the whole time. John chapter 4. If you need to use your table of contents, please do it. The Bible is a very complex book. It's quite difficult to, to get native to it and to find your way around it without a map. So if you need the table of contents, do that. In verse 39, we read, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Testimony. So what we have here is that after Jesus, in the first half of the chapter that Drew didn't read, after Jesus revealed himself to the woman, this this particular woman as the Messiah, it changed her. And she began to give testimony. And what we'll see is that her testimony was, was both the testimony to an objective fact and a subjective experience. And this is what I mean by being public to the faith. This is the content of a public witness to the faith. It's going to be both subjective and objective. So she's giving testimony to something that's subjective, something that she experienced. It was true for her. And she's giving testimony to something objectively, something that she believes is true for the whole world. An objective reality. First, her subjective testimony. It's actually mentioned twice. Look, first it comes up in verse 29. This is on the front of the worship guide. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. And notice this is so important to her testimony that it's repeated again at the end of the passage in verse 39. He told me all that I ever did. Now, Now, what's that all about? Well, notice how in verse 27, the disciples were sent into town to get food, and they came back, and they're surprised to find Jesus talking to this woman. And the woman was equally surprised to find Jesus talking to her. Why? Three reasons. First of all, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. There was a very real, very serious, deeply rooted racial boundary that Jesus crossed. Second, Men and women didn't really engage in this way, in that culture. One of the ways patriarchy played out in that culture was that men did not normally talk to women that they weren't related to. And third, this woman, because of various experiences and choices and labels, I'll I'll dig into the particulars of that later on in the message. The point at hand is this, that There were some things about this woman that put her at the bottom of the social hierarchy. So Jesus was at the top of the social hierarchy in this situation. He was was much higher up all of these class and culture and social ladders. And she was at the bottom. He was a Jew. She was a half-breed, a Samaritan. He was a man. She was a woman. He was a rabbi. And because of those labels I'll get into later, she was at the bottom of the cultural hierarchy. And Jesus reached right through every one of those barriers. And he started talking to her about her whole life. Not about something safe like what they read in the newspaper that morning. But about something very unsafe. Her whole life. Which as we'll find out is not a safe topic with this woman. 
So she goes to all these people and she says, he talked to me about me. He talked about my life. The woman, she doesn't know very much at all about Jesus. She doesn't even know that he's going to go to the cross. And yet she kind of gets something that's right at the core of Christianity. She says, come and see a man. Jewish men didn't talk to Samaritans, much less Samaritan women. And yet he came right on in and he talked to me about me. She had an experience of grace. That's what that was. That was grace. She had never experienced probably someone higher up the social ladder. And those social ladders in that hierarchical honor-shame culture... Everyone was obsessed with those things, but Jesus doesn't care. And she sensed one of the things that is right at the heart of the Christian faith, which is that the spiritual blessing of the life-giving fountain of all, of all that is in this world, the living water that Jesus was talking about, he was offering it to her, and it was not a matter of earning it, of moral attainment. It wasn't for the good people. It wasn't for the successful people. It wasn't just for people who had achieved a certain place on society's ladder of achievement. She realized that life-giving Blessing, water, spiritual goodness was a matter of grace. She had an experience of grace. She had never seen that kind of graciousness, graciousness. She had never seen anybody who didn't care about the barriers. She had never seen anybody who offered spiritual blessing to somebody no matter where they were in the social pecking order. And even though she didn't understand a lot about Christianity, she got that. And so, first of all, she's giving testimony to that reality, which is part of the heart of Christianity. That there is a God who is personally interested in each one of us. This God who is sheer love all the way to the core of his being. She had this very real, very important, subjective experience of grace. Come and see this man who talked to me about everything in my life. And that is part of the very center of Christianity. But that's not all there is. In fact, the center of Christianity is not only about a very personal, subjective experience of grace. There's something about Christianity in its essence that we must identify as objective. A fact whether we experience it or not. Notice at the end, at the very end, verse 42. They said to the woman, it says... It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So not only did she tell them about her own gracious experience with Jesus, she also told them that he's the Savior of the world. So she didn't come to them and say, gosh, he really helped me. He really loved me. He's true for me, but he might not be true for you. 
No, what she said was something like, he's not just the savior of the Jews. He's not just the savior of the Samaritans. He's not just the savior of good people. He's, in fact, the savior of the world. He's not just my savior. He is the world's savior. So she was telling people, I had an experience of grace. It is possible to have spiritual blessing and salvation, not as a moral attainment, but as a gift of grace. And this is something that can come to anyone, and it comes through this man who is the Savior of the world. So that's what she's testifying to. She's testifying to two things, to her own life-changing experience with with the God who is the fountain of love and grace, but she's also testifying to the objective claim the reality, the fact that that God who is so personal and so loving is the cosmic only Savior of the world. All right, so when we talk about being a church that is public with our faith, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about being people who give testimony both to our own experience with Jesus and we share with others that he is their savior. That there is no tribe and tongue and people or language or religion that does not find its salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, how do we do that? How do we actually say that kind of stuff? Because it doesn't really tell us, I mean, any of the stuff we've read so far doesn't tell us how she did it. It just kind of reports the content of what she did. So how do we, how, in what manner can we go about making these kinds of testimonies to people? Well, the Samaritan woman here, her public faith is marked by three qualities. Honesty, simplicity, and bravery. First, let's see Her disarming transparency. A way of being transparent and honest that's not abrasive, but it's disarming. Notice, she doesn't get up and preach a sermon. And she doesn't just walk up to people on the street that she doesn't know. She went into town, a small town. And she spoke to the people that she knew. And what does she say to them? Well, she simply tells them what happened to her. And this is, I hope what I'm about to tell you is going to be both comforting and very challenging. The comforting thing is is this. If you're a Christian, if Jesus Christ has come in and changed your life, then all you have to do is tell people that. You don't have to have a graduate degree in the Bible. You don't even have to know all there is to know about Christianity. You don't even have to be around for very long the church. That's comforting. Just tell people what happened to you. Here's the convicting part, though. The only way you can fail to do that, the only way you can fail to be public about your faith is if you hide who you truly are. If you commit an act of relational deceit. You see, if Jesus is central to your life, then 
then Jesus is the way that you face your problems. He's the way you make decisions to a large degree. He's the way you set your priorities. He's the way you determine what you're going to do on Sundays, what you're going to do with your money, what you're going to do with your body. And in a normal relationship, the closer you get to somebody, you get just a little more transparent as you get closer. You share a little bit more about your life. Right? You don't walk up to the stranger on the street and tell them everything there is. about. Well, some of you do. But other than you, you people. As a relationship grows... You share a little more about your life, a little more about how you handle your problems, a little more about what you're facing, a little more about your hopes and aspirations, right? That's just normal relational development. You get more and more transparent. And if you're a Christian, the only way that your friends cannot know how committed you are to the Christian faith is if you essentially short-circuit the normal course of the relationship. Because if they don't know that you're a Christian, then they don't know who you really are. I mean, there's only two possibilities if the people around you don't know. One possibility is that Christ is not as central to your life as he ought to be. That is a possibility. He's not the way you face problems. He's just kind of tacked on to the edges like some cheap decoration in a kitsch home. He's just kind of out there on the side. He's not the way you make decisions. The other other possibility is that you're guilty of relational malpractice, of relational deceit. You're in a friendship with someone and you're hiding who you are, who you really are. You're compartmentalizing that into some little category of life called spiritual or religious or something. All this woman did was say with a rather disarming transparency, this is what I just experienced. This is the amazing stuff that's happening to me. So first of all, the way in which we should go about being public with our faith is just be honest. And there is a disarming aspect to that kind of transparency. I've learned this from my wife in the way she is public with her faith. She has said, I just am going to tell people that I was praying. That this morning when I was reading my Bible, this is what I came to see. That's at the center of who I am, so I'm not going to... Check that. I'm not going to say to people, well, I decided. I'm not going to hide that aspect of my life. I'm just going to be as honest with my non-Christian friends as I am with my Christian friends. The second thing about how this woman was public with her faith is what we can call, what Tim Keller calls, Jesus simplicity. Here's what, it, here's what, it, what that means. This woman knew hardly anything about Christianity. And because she knew hardly anything, she got it right. In her newfound faith, knowing so little, notice what she says. It's right there on the front of our worship guide, right across the top. It's verse 29. Come and see a man. Just see him. Just go see Jesus. That's what she said to people. Just look at Jesus. What is the gospel? It's Jesus. That's enough. Look, if you're a Christian and you've thought, well, I I don't know how I would share the gospel. I mean, Aubrey talks on and on and on, and I could never talk that long. I would run out of oxygen. 
I don't know what I would say. It seems so complicated. Look, it, it definitely is. I mean, it's sort of like relationships are super complicated on the one hand, but on the other hand, they're, you could just say they're my friend, right? I mean, they're, these two dimensions exist in a lot of life, right? Uh, a car is super complicated. On the other hand, you just get in it, turn the key, and you drive, right? Look, if you're a Christian and, and you've thought, I, I don't know how, look, just say to your friend, your colleague, your neighbor, go see Jesus. I want you to know about Jesus. I want you to read about him. I want you to rely on him. I just want you to get to know Jesus. Christianity is Jesus. And there's no other religion that can talk like that. Not Buddha. Not Muhammad. They would never have said, just come to me. Don't look at me, they would say. It's not about me. It's about the way. Buddha Mahama said, I'm here to show you the way, the way of salvation. So tread the path of salvation and you'll find salvation. And so Buddha would say, look, look, it's not me. It's the eightfold path to enlightenment. Muhammad would say, here's the five pillars of Islam. Submit to them. And the founders of these other religions would say, it's not about me. It's about the way. Travel the way. But Jesus very famously said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Christian faith is Jesus. You couldn't say the Buddhist faith is Buddha. You could not say that, that, that Islam is just Muhammad. You couldn't say that. But Christians, you can say, just look at Jesus. Just come to see Jesus. Only Christianity can say that. Let, let me tell you about my entire faith. Go see Jesus. Come see a man, figure out who he is, what he did, everything about him, and you've got it. You've got it. You're safe. And over and over again, God uses that witness of ordinary Christians. Can you spend a life? Yeah, I, I can't. I don't even know how many years I was in school. Bachelor's degree, master's degree, half of a doctorate, then a PhD, all on theology. Can you spend your whole life? Yes. Can you spend your whole life studying the ocean? Yeah. Can you just go out and swim in it? Yeah. Over and over and over, God has used this simple witness of ordinary Christians. If you know Jesus and you just say, come to Jesus, that's the way the kingdom moves forward. And that's what God uses to help people find faith. So the way in which we should go about being public with our faith is, first of all, just be honest. Just stop talking two ways. One way to your Christian friends and one way in a secular environment. Instead, learn to make sense whenever you talk. Get rid of all the pietistic Christian jargon. But don't get rid of the central role of Christianity. And second... Don't be afraid of not knowing enough. It's okay to have a kind of Jesus simplicity. And third, like this woman, be brave. And to see this, let's go back to that thing I touched on earlier that I told you I'd talk about later. This woman's social status. Go back to verse 6. Jesus, tired from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about midday. A Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus spoke to her. All right, so when Jesus met this woman, she was alone. She was drawing water at what time? 
around noon, the middle of the day. Now, ordinarily, the women came as a group, and they came out to the well in the morning. First thing, why? Two primary reasons. First of all, you needed water for all of the day's chores. All the cooking, all the washing, all the cleaning. So you came in the morning to get water first because all of the day's chores, so many of them were going to involve water. So you needed to get water first. Secondly, you came in the morning because it wasn't so stinking hot. It was cool. As opposed to being incredibly hot. And so this woman, she's there at noon. Look, when you're reading literature, there's something called a gap and something called a blank. A blank is when the author doesn't tell you something and it doesn't matter. A blank is when somebody's telling you a story and you interrupt and ask them a question and they say, that doesn't matter, just listen. A gap is when the author leaves something out and it does matter and you're supposed to track it down. Why was this woman there in the middle of the day? That's a gap, that's not a blank. So this woman, she comes by herself at noon in the heat of the day. And virtually every historian and every commentator who's worked on this passage, they've all said the exact same thing. It's because of her social status. That's the only thing that drove a woman in that culture to do something that was so problematic, which is wait to go to the well and do it when it was hot. She's at the bottom of the social ladder, and therefore, when she leaves her water jug and goes back into town to talk to people and to say to them, come say a man who told me everything I did, could this be the Messiah? She's going to talk to people who have ostracized her. She's going to talk to the society of which she is an outcast. She, she knew how likely it was that they wouldn't listen to her. Do you listen to the people you refuse to sit by? Do you listen to the outcast? Does our society listen to the people that we've shoved in the jails? She knew it was likely they wouldn't listen. In that kind of culture, when you're the local pariah, the moral outcast in a small town, why in the world would they listen to her about religious stuff? Surely she knew in her heart things could get really bad. Things can get even worse for me. They might ridicule me. At least when I come by myself, I don't have to deal with all the ridicule. Surely she knew I'm walking right into that. And they might ridicule me. And my social status might get even worse. Why will they listen to me talk about the very thing that's disqualified me? Moral, religious stuff. But she went anyway. And even though she knew she might get ridiculed, even though it might make her social standing any worse, she went. Look, if you're a junior high student, If you're a senior high student, if you're a college student, if you're an adult, I'm sure you work with people for whom, or you sit by people, or there are people on your street, that if you let them know that Jesus was at the very center of your life, And that when you face problems, you pray and you seek his help and his direction. And that you set your priorities by this Jesus. And the reason that your week in life looks different than their week in life, both what you do with your body and what you do with your time and the way you spend your money, that it's because of Jesus and that you really believe he rose from the dead and that one day he'll return to make all things new. And that you spend time regularly reading and reflecting on scripture and praying and that you, and that, 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 
There are so many parts of your life that if, if they knew that what you think about issues of gender and sexuality, and if they knew that you have pegged all of your hopes on Jesus, and if they knew what you believed, what your Christian faith was like, I'm sure that some of them would just be dumbfounded. And they would have some sort of either verbal or inarticulated response that says, well, goodness, I didn't know anybody believe that anymore who's got more than a third grade education. And some of them would be angry and hostile and it might bring ridicule to you and might even hurt your reputation and your social standing. Just be brave. Be brave. And this brings me to the last point about this woman. Her motive. What's behind all of this? Is it arrogance? I mean, isn't this a dangerous arrogance to say, I've got the truth about God and religion? To actually tell people you believe something, but, but that you believe something that is right and what they believe is wrong and they should change? Isn't this just very offensive to a lot of our friends and work colleagues and students in our classes and neighbors, there's a basic cultural narrative of our society that you should not think that you have the truth. Because if you think you have the truth, you're just like the Islamic fundamentalists. You're just like the KKK. If you think I have the truth and what I understand about God and religion is true and what you understand about God and religion is not true or it's not as true as it should be and, and so you need to be persuaded by me and you need to convert and come over to believe what I believe. There's a kind of deeply intuitive sense, a plausibility structure in our culture that that's very wrong. It's, it's narrow and it's dangerous. It's wrong to try to convert people. It's naive, it's tunnel vision, it's unkind to say that you have the truth and they don't. And here's the thing, that critique is just wrong. It doesn't work. It's not consistent. It's deeply hypocritical. If you say, well, you should not say that your view of religion and God is superior to anybody else's. If you said that to me, if you said to me, Aubrey, your view of religion and God is superior, you're acting as if it's superior to everybody else's, you shouldn't have that. Well, aren't you doing the exact same thing? Aren't you saying that your view of this kind of godless world is superior to my view? Aren't you making the exact same move as I'm making? You're making a truth claim. You're making a claim about being right or being wrong. You're guilty of your own critique. But it goes deeper than that. Terry Eagleton, he's a very important, very serious British literary critic. Um, he wrote a book called The Illusion of Postmodernism. Um, he writes this mainly in the area of academic literary critique. And in it, he identifies the movement of postmodernism as fundamentally a movement against binaries. He says many of his friends in the academy, they say that if someone were to say you have the truth, that they have the truth, then what they've done is they've set up a binary. They're saying, I have the truth, you have falsehood. I'm good, you're bad. I'm normal, you're abnormal, I'm right, you're wrong. 
And, and, and by pushing this binary view, you're dividing our world. You're creating division in the world. And that's what we need right now for peace. What we need right now for peace is the Christian countries and the Muslim countries to stop doing that. What the world really needs is for religious people to stop saying, I'm right and you're wrong. What we desperately need is to let everybody hold their own belief with freedom. Let everybody believe what they believe. Now, Eagleton points out that the only problem with this view is that when someone says, I'm one of the good people who doesn't set up binaries, and you're one of the bad people who do, you've just set up a binary. The good people who don't set up binaries and the bad people who do. And at the end of the day, there are really only two kinds of people in this world. People who set up binaries and make exclusive truth claims. And people who set up binaries and make exclusive truth claims but don't admit that they're setting up binaries and setting up making exclusive truth claims. So the real question, so where does that leave us? I mean, does that leave us locked into a world of conflict? The real question that the world needs to answer is not how can we get more peace in the, in the face of a world filled with people who are pig-headedly, arrogantly stuck in their exclusive truth claims. No, you can't not, you can't not make exclusive truth claims. You can't not set up binaries. What you really need to answer is this. Whose understanding of the truth, whose truth claims make them loving in the way they hold their truth claims? Whose truth claims make them respectful? Whose whose claim on the truth makes them gracious and kind? If there's no binary-less place, then what we need is people who hold a truth claim with humility and kindness. And which, one, which truth claim can produce that kind of person? We need a whole bunch of people like this woman. Gracious, not condescending. Respectful, not divisive, not harsh, not oppressive. We need people who on the one hand, certainly they are saying, I found the truth. But they do it in such a way that's winsome and respectful. You see, the postmodern critique is right to a large extent about this binary stuff. It's right that, generally speaking, if the ordinary human heart thinks I've got the truth and you don't, it gets pretty ugly. It's the reason Terry Eagleton points out that some of his friends who say, those people who think they have the truth on God, they're the problem. And those of us who are relativists, we're the hope for the world. And immediately, those friends of his, he says, turn that truth into a club that they bash others with who don't hold that view. An intolerant tolerance. There's something about the human heart that when you say, I've got the truth, it makes you feel better than everyone else. Postmodernism is exactly right about that. But here's what it's missing. That is not the case when the particular truth you've been gripped by is Jesus Christ. The source of all love and goodness and kindness and graciousness and gentleness. 
If he's your truth, if you, like this woman, have been saved by grace, if you can say, he knew everything about me, like even that stuff nobody else knows, he talked to me about all of it, and he loves you anyway, that humbles you, right? Have you ever been loved? When you were covered in your crap, it humbles you. It humbles you to be covered in all of your brokenness and to be loved. You know, to be loved when you're only partly known, that's superficial. To be totally known and rejected, that's terrible. But to be totally known and totally loved, that's what Christians call grace. And that's what we say is at the heart of the universe. That's what we say the God we worship holds. So it's not about getting to some enlightenment position of having objective, non-exclusive truth claims. No, it's about latching on to the particular truth claim that makes you better and makes you kind. And when you tap into the truth claim that is Jesus, that makes you into the kind of person who can be simultaneously brave and humble, confident and kind. This is the truth that makes you so that you both hold it and you do not feel superior to the person who doesn't hold it. Jesus can make us into the kind of people the world needs right now, desperately, why can't Fox News say a kind thing about the Democrats? Why can't the Democrats right now give any benefit of the doubt to Trump? We live in a world that is desperately in need of people who take Jesus all the way into the center of their heart. People who can talk about the truth without oppressing, without silencing, without marginalizing those who differ. People who can talk about the truth without feeling superior because at the center of the truth we claim is that we're not superior. We've just been graced. The gospel of Jesus humbles us and it takes out that terrible egocentricity that the postmodern critique of exclusive truth claims is a right. It's just leaving out the incredible place of Jesus and the way he can change that. There is nothing more wonderful than doing this with your friends. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, what I've just done with this woman is called food. Did you get that weird part of the conversation? Food. I have a food that you don't know about. It's the food of sowing the seed of the gospel and seeing people have their lives changed by God. There is nothing greater than when you are public with your faith and you see that through your public witness, God blesses people. Why do Christians share their faith with others? Is it because of arrogance? No, it's because of love. Sometimes you can encounter Christians who act as if a church is a collection of individuals with the common purpose of getting people to join their cool club. And that's unfortunate. So going back to where we started, 
because I'm being told by the children's ministry. It's time to wrap it up. We want to be a church that is relationally winsome, accessible, respectful, humble, and loving in our posture at the same time that we're clear and even brave about the gospel. This does not mean we need to be strident, assaulting strangers on the, on the street corner. It simply means, Christian, don't hide who you are. The kingdom of God is central to how you think about things and make decisions and how you face the challenges of life. If you are simply candid and natural in sharing who you are and what you do with others, they will learn that you go to church and you have a vital life-shaping faith in Jesus Christ. God called the church into existence in order to announce to the world that through Jesus Christ, the world has a Savior. The church exists, in other words, for mission. To announce to the world that Jesus is its Lord. This is the news that's so good. And when it is announced, this is what our Romans passage says. There is power in the mere testifying to it. There's power in that. The power of God is in that. And people find their hearts being woken up in faith. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.